0: good morning morning. if you're out in the hall come on in we're going to get our lord this is the lord's day warm-up i think is what we we would call this i want to talk about bible training institute just for a minute here um and kind of some things that the lord is doing and that that we're going to try to uh, make some adjustments uh, some good adjustments this is our uh, as a church our fourth time through uh, Bible Training Institute. We've made some tweaks and things like that. We just finished module four uh, out of seven, and so we're going to take a little break today, and I'm, I'm going to do a, a talk that I, I promised I would do. I do every couple of years, uh, and it's important. But one of the uh, changes we're going to make is that um, Grant O'Weiler is going to step aside from doing all the administrative stuff um, with uh, Bible Training Institute. There's, there's good news and bad news to that. The good news is that that frees him up as an elder to do some other bigger picture things that he's, he's really good at. He's been faithful with BTI uh, nine years. So thank you, Grant, um, for that. Uh, the bad news is, is that the person that's replacing him is going to grade papers harder. So, uh, but that's, it's actually good news. So uh, Jay, come on up here for a minute. If you all haven't met Jay Street yet, um, if you've been at Grace for any period of time and he looks familiar, his twin brother was our first youth pastor um, here, so we just rotate streets uh, on a regular basis, uh, no relation to the other street family. Um, but Jay is eminently qualified. He has an MDiv from uh, the Master's Seminary as well as a Master of Theology from the Master's Seminary. So you're going to get the benefit of some good feedback um, as well as he's, a, he's a, a, a crack administrator, so he can, he can kind of do it all. But I'm excited about this. Not only is Jay helping with that part, but he's helping me um, kind of revamp the whole program um, to where we're, we're going to make this a little bit higher level offering. Um, we want to disciple people, not only within our own church, but have others have the opportunity to be a part of it as well. Um, probably once a month, we get emails from people literally all over the world saying, can we do BTI also? Um, So we're trying to figure out how to do that. So anyway, um, if you want to officially do Module 5, we need to know that. And so you need to sign up in the back or let Jay know. He's taking over for Module 5 as our administrator. Uh, Sorry to just have you standing here. So everybody warmly welcome Jay. Yay! (laughs) Thanks. Um, And and if if you're wondering, boy, there's a lot of streets around here. There's even more than you know. Uh, his his dad is John Street, the professor at the Master's University and Master's uh, uh, Seminary as well. One of my professors, in fact. So uh, we're thankful for that. And I'm excited what the next year will hold. Our goal is to kind of, uh, by the time we finish Module 7, this time around, to present kind of a revamped and elevated uh, BTI. Um, hopefully, one, one of our hopes, uh, we're not guaranteeing this, but we would like to include some church history as well. Um, I think that's important. So for those of you that have just cycled through BTI lectures two or three times, there's more to come. So that's okay. Um, But we want to continue elevating what we're doing. And speaking of which, um, every time I look at this topic, reasons to trust the synoptic gospels, I I sort of wonder whether I'm doing it because it's useful to you or interesting to me, and I'm still not sure. So uh, hopefully it'll be both, but it is interesting to me. And I'll give you some good reasons for it. But let's go ahead and um, go to the Lord in prayer and really get our Lord's Day started as worshipers together. Our Father, we take a moment here to breathe and after the, the busyness of getting ourselves up this morning and getting ready and getting ourselves here to gather together. Now we take a moment to pause and to ponder the fact that we have come together with people every one of whom has been miraculously saved. There's no such thing as somebody who's saved without the miracle of the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. And so we're in awe that we gather with the people that are saved by the will of the Father, through the blood of the Son, and by means of the Holy Spirit's work. We're in awe that every Sunday, though our world doesn't know it, they are acknowledging that there is a day every week that we remember our God, Jesus, who who was raised from the dead. And so, Lord, we pause and we breathe and we think on godly and heavenly and eternal and glorious and awe-inspiring truths. May our time this morning warm us up to be able to worship you later in in more formal means. And I pray that it would be a truly tremendous Lord's Day, that by the time each of us lays our head on the pillow this night, we know we have encountered the living God through His Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Reasons to trust the synoptic Gospels. That's a good title to put anybody to sleep instantly. And I understand that. So I'm hoping to show you that this is useful. Uh, <clears throat> the Synoptic Gospels. First of all, let me do a little, little background definitions here. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This issue we're going to talk about today, you're probably not going to see it on, on social media unless you search for it and there's four people talking about it. Um, you're not going to see it in the news, certainly. You're not going to see it on any, from any major news outlets, Um, You're not even going to see it really in any Bible conferences. It is almost an invisible issue. And yet, it is an issue that to this day impacts almost every church in the world. Because it divides teachers of God's word into two camps. The majority camp, which believes what we're going to fight against today. And the minority camp, that believes as we believe here at Grace which is that you can trust the synoptic gospels. So, believe it or not, this is a big issue, but it's not talked about, which almost makes it uh, more dangerous because nobody's talking about this except in in high-level areas and seminaries and certainly not in churches. I I don't know of another church you can go to and get a lecture on this um, because most churches say, well, lectures are bad. No, they're not bad. You need information. So, this is something for, I just want you to be aware of that is out there, it, it probably won't affect your day-to-day life. But I think by the time we're done today, you will love the Word of God even more, and you'll trust it even more. That's my hope, and that's my my goal this morning. So I want to walk through this material, and, and there's a lot, and so I'll, I'll be as quick as I can and as detailed as I can. The Synoptic Gospels. These are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to leave out John, because John is a, is a completely different Kind of animal. It's a a totally different gospel. But why do we put these three together? The word synoptic is from the Greek for see together. And it means you can view them side by side. That you could put them parallel to one another. Because they have 230 places in those three gospels of what they call triple tradition. That they record the same events or the same conversations. Sometimes the events are recorded in the same order. Sometimes in a different order. Uh, It doesn't matter. There's no gospel rule book. Um, They can do things in different orders. Um, And I'll give you some examples of that a little bit later. There is, here's the apparent difficulty. And we'll call it apparent because there is no difficulty. The apparent difficulty is that each book often records a slightly different version of of a given event. Liberal theologians call this the synoptic problem. Now, what do uh, what do what does the average person who's heard about this they don't they don't know the term synoptic problem they certainly don't know the synoptic gospels, but what they have been taught by liberals and by the media and and by just their upbringing is that there are what's the word we use contradictions in the Bible, and the gospels is where they always go. Well, you know, one gospel says there were two angels at the tomb when Jesus was raised, another one says one. That's a contradiction. I'll show you that it's not. And so this is what's called the synoptic problem. The, the so-called synoptic problem um, makes some general assumptions. And I'm sorry that font is a little bit small. I, I didn't realize that when I made that. Um, <clears throat> it makes some general assumptions. And I'll get more specific in a minute. But here are the assumptions. Any agreement in the Gospels where, where they, they agree with one another are due to dependence on oral traditions, that these are stories passed down from one generation to another or, or people talking about it. And since, uh, you know, apparently Matthew, Mark, and Luke used to go and have coffee all the time and they all agreed, hey, we should talk about these things uh, in our separate Gospels, uh, never mind that they were written decades apart. Second assumption is that the current Gospels, are you ready for this, are dependent on earlier Gospels, on... Fragments on pieces, on um, other written uh, uh, sources. And so what's that going to do? It's going to begin to call into question whether we have the most accurate information or not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the third general assumption is that gospel accounts that agree with each other must have depended upon one another. I call that, again, the coffee shop theory that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had to have gotten together and they they either talked or one took another gospel and just copied down exactly what was happening or used it. That's the only way agreement could have possibly happened. So, that's the apparent difficulty. What the average person will call the contradictions in the uh, <clears throat> in the, the Gospels. By the way, if you want to just skip to the end, the easy way for people, when they make that, that query, if they say, well, what about the contradictions in the Bible? Um, just say, which one? Point to one. Because usually people who make that argument don't know of any, um, because there aren't any, and so that makes it hard to know one. So that's the apparent difficulty. But the fact is, there is no problem. There's no problem. But to try to solve the so-called problem, they came up with a way of judging the scriptures called source criticism. Now, <clears throat> let, me, let me tell you what this is just like. I thought of this when I was praying this morning, and it occurred to me that there's a, a political illustration that we could use. Um, <clears throat> if you do a study of, of uh, the history of nations, what you will find is that poverty in nations is only caused basically by two things. We're talking outside the sovereignty of God here, we're just human nature. Poverty is caused by two things. Massive famine or drought, and everybody gets that. But the other thing that causes poverty um, is government policy. Government policy causes poverty. And so the government creates an artificial problem with regulation and oversight and and being overbearing and trying to control everything. That causes poverty, especially when you give people money who don't work. The Bible says if you do not work, you do not eat. If we went by that principle, everybody would be eating because it's a great motivator. Proverbs says that the man's hunger drives him to the field. So if government causes this problem, then what do they do? They say, well, we have to solve the problem by more oversight, more regulation, and more control. But there isn't a problem. Poverty was never meant to be a problem. If you read through the law of God in the Old Testament, Israel solved the problem of poverty. They took care of each other. And it wasn't government oversight that did that. It was obeying God. So what this is, is there is no problem. The problem has been caused by those who say there's a problem. And now they come up with the solution. And it's sort of like the government again oppressing you and then saying you should be thankful to us because we're going to save you from the oppression that we're that we're giving you. So uh, there is no problem. So to try to solve the so-called problem, they came up with a way of judging the scriptures called source criticism. Source criticism and, and criticism in a in a biblical study uh, context doesn't mean that you're looking down on something it means you're analyzing something. So that that's all that means. Uh, That each gospel must have had a source that was consulted by the authors. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke had to be looking at other sources. They had to have uh, some other things that they were looking at. That the gospels are purely and 100% a reconstruction of, of what some call literary strands or fragments or lost documents that we don't have. Now, just to be clear, and we want to be as accurate as we can, that's not entirely... Inaccurate, but I'll show you the difference here. There is a gospel that relies on other documents, but we'll make a clear distinction, and that is the gospel of Luke. Listen to Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, what does that say? Luke is saying that lots of people have written down the stuff that happened with Jesus when he was on earth, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Having delivered have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so what's the difference between Luke 1 where he says that he has used other sources and the lie of source criticism the difference is is that source criticism says that those other Unknown sources are more reliable, more accurate, and closer to the truth. Luke doesn't ever say that. What we would say is that he used sources and the Holy Spirit inspired the use of those sources and the final product is inspired. But we would say Luke is greater than the sources he used. We wouldn't consider those sources inspired. We wouldn't consider them more accurate. If they were better, where would they be? It would be in the fifth gospel, right? It, it, there would be more of them or we would have lots of little fragments, but we don't have that. Thankfully, uh, the gospel of Luke is God's appointed researcher to give us only inspired truth. So what is source criticism? Here's where we have to kind of sludge through some detail. And, and again, um, I would urge you to go back and listen to this. If you're really having trouble sleeping, this will put you out like that but I, I want you to, to understand this. Source criticism has two basic camps, and this is a, a broad simplification. There's the two-source theory. This came about in the 18th century. The two-source theory depends on a major, major assumption that they call Markan priority, that mark was written first. And you might say, who cares? They were all written 2,000 years ago, so you know who cares which one is first? Well, here's the reason that for that assumption and all it is is an assumption there's no proof the assumption is is that since mark is shorter it's simpler then it must have come first that in other words it's sort of the outline version you got 16 chapters whereas matthew you have 28 which is the, the the broadened version but there is zero evidence for this except that it's shorter that's it now let me ask you this <clears throat> If you held side-by-side two documents that are 2,000 years old and one is a paragraph and one is a a book chapter length, would you say, well, since they're talking about the same thing, the shorter one must have come first? Nobody would say that. You have no basis for knowing that. But that's an assumption that they make. Now, this is where it gets really crazy and and it might seem crazy to you, but you'll be surprised how accepted this is. Mark and priority, two-source theory, they believe in an imaginary document called Q. It's from a, from. It stands for the German word source, and they. It is an imaginary document. You cannot go to any library in the world and check out a copy of Q. Um, you can't find it online. Nobody has ever read it, and there's a good reason that nobody's ever read it because it doesn't exist. It's not there. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, rather, they have some material that's not in Mark, so they must have used Q as a source as well, that that must have been the case. I I want to read to you a little bit of a lengthy quote from C.M. Tuckett, who writes a really good definition in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. He says, within the terms of the two-source theory as the solution to the synoptic problem, the agreements between the three synoptic Gospels are accounted for in two ways. In most of the passages where all three Gospels are parallel, the triple tradition... Matthew and Luke depend on Mark's gospel. In other parts of the tradition where Matthew and Luke are parallel, the double tradition, the agreements between those two gospels are explained by their dependence on a common source material. This material is usually known as Q. The majority of scholars today would favor a form of the Q hypothesis. What I'm telling you is, is if you poll 50 seminaries in the United States, most of them believe in Q. Then you have, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're still not able to sleep, go to four source theory. Four source theory is the same as two source, but it gets a little more complex. That Matthew also used a document called M and Luke also used a document called L. I suppose you go to an imaginary library to check out imaginary documents. I, I don't know where you would find that. But this is really my main reason for telling you this. The majority of critical commentaries on the Gospels, in their introductions and all throughout the commentary, they reference Q, M, and L as if they're real. And I just want you to be aware of this, because a lot of you like to do an extra study on your own. That doesn't make the commentary bad. It's not evil. We're not having a book burning next week in the parking lot. Everything that says Q in it is going up in flames. doesn't make it a bad commentary as far as the text goes. A, a, a good uh, exegetical commentary that's analyzing the text the greek text is still going to be accurate but then they start talking about q and you just kind of mark that part out it doesn't make it bad but it does betray a lower view of scripture uh, by the way i don't have time for this the old testament has its own version of this as well that uh, source criticism that they say there are four major sources that particularly the torah uh the the law The Pentateuch were drawn from. And so they have their own version. That's another talk for another day. So, what are the problems with source criticism? Right about now, you might be going, Who cares? Just tell me about Jesus. That's the point. I need a source from which to tell you about Jesus, don't I? What source criticism does is begin to take that away. Let me show you. Here's some problems with source criticism. And then we're going to go on the rabbit trail here in a minute. First of all, it assumes the existence of imaginary documents. I, for the life of me, I can't imagine being a scholar that just openly quotes Q or says this must come from Q. The only reason they do that, and this is, a, this is one of the downfalls of Christian academia, is it's, in a, it's a, an attempt to impress other people, to make other people happy. And so they quote sources that are slightly older that quote sources that are slightly older. I've been preaching long enough to find uh, 10 commentaries that all say the same thing. And if you trace the thread, number 10 quoted nine, quoted eight, quoted seven, all the way back to one, and none of them actually prove the argument. So just because a bunch of people say the same thing doesn't make it true. See also COVID vaccines, but that's a uh, a different argument. It also ignores the fact that the early church for hundreds of years was unanimous that Matthew was written first. Absolutely unanimous. You know how many early church fathers believed Mark came first? Zero. Church history doesn't prove anything, but when you're completely outnumbered and, you're, and it's totally unanimous, then you want to take a second look at that. But to just decide that in the 18th century, um, 1,700 years removed from the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you know more than the guys who were there, that's, a, that's pretty arrogant. So that's a major problem. It also assumes that so-called contradictions must somehow be explained away. <clears throat> are there things in Scripture that are difficult for us to understand? Absolutely. Does that mean I have to explain it? Nope. Um, as Charles Spurgeon said, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to, you don't have to explain it. Just let it out of the cage and it will do its work. And so, yes, there are big, difficult things, but no contradictions. And I'll I'll say this right now, too. Every single so-called apparent contradiction has a logical and reasonable explanation. In fact, they usually have multiple. There's no no contradiction of a major catastrophic level. There's no contradiction, for example, that says uh, that Jesus was crucified in the middle of the night in one gospel and crucified in the morning in another. There's nothing like that another problem it completely ignores the idea of harmonizing the gospels all 230 places i just mentioned this have a way to be harmonized we might not always have the exact answers but there's always plausible explanations and i want to camp on this one the fifth problem is it assumes a low view of scripture it assumes a low view of Scripture. And what I'd like to do is I'm actually going to kind of borrow here with a little detour. I'm going, to, I'm going to borrow from the Gospel of John because it helps us understand this. I'm going to include in the so-called synoptic problem one of the very few places where John's Gospel overlaps with the others because I, there's some good, I think, a good illustration here. Um, and I want to start with the John 12 account of Mary, the sister of Martha, anointing the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 12, I'll just read the account to you. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You have the same account in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26. Then you also have Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 36 says this. Luke 7.36 One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered to answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And then he he tells a parable about somebody who owes a large debt and somebody who owes a small debt. And and the lesson is that the one who owes the larger debt um, is more grateful, is more thankful and turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but the time I came in the, I she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he, who, he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. I'm sorry, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And the conclusion is, he tells the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The assumption by source critics is that there are major contradictions between these accounts. And there are. So let's walk through it. How does the scholar who holds the source criticism and thereby ten- therefore tends toward a lower view of Scripture explain this? I want to quote to you from a guy named Gerald Borchert who writes really good stuff, but he betrays his view here. He says that the fact that the story of the anointing appears in all four Gospels confirms its significance to the overall presentation of the good news. That's true, and that's good. But then he denigrates anyone who tries to harmonize the Gospels. And he says this, this is a long quote. On the other hand, one who pursues a life of Christ harmony may find it a little disconcerting to discover that so little of John can be directly coordinated with the other Gospels. Indeed, it may even be surprising for a reader to find that when one looks at the text like the anointing, where coordination would be possible, even here, some variance between John and the synoptics is evident, and that in presentation, the synoptics are not totally coordinated with each other. They're not coordinated. I put this in layman's terms. Houston, we have a problem. That they're not coordinated. And Borchardt just says, but it's not a big deal that there's not total coordination. I would say it's a big deal. Because I want to believe the Bible. Here are the contradictions. In the account of the woman anointing Jesus, Borchardt points out specifically, Mark and Matthew report an anointing of Jesus' head, whereas Luke and John speak of the anointing of His feet. His assumption is that since there's only one anointing account in each gospel, they're all speaking of the same event but with contradictions. That is purely an assumption. How about this? It's two different events. It's two different events. There's no rule that says all the gospels have to record the same events and all of them, if one records one, one records all, all of them record one. There's no rule that says that. What he's doing is writing a gospel rule book after the fact that creates a problem. Luke chapter 7 is about a sinful woman in the home of Simon the Pharisee early in Jesus' ministry. And John 12, Matthew 26, and Mark 14 are about Mary, the sister of Martha, in Simon the leper's home late in Jesus' ministry. That's it. That's not that hard. Matthew and Mark recorded that Mary anointed Jesus' head, and John recorded that Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Why? Because Mary anointed his head and his feet. I don't know what's so difficult about that. You remember at the tomb, some Gospels record two angels, some record one. What's the difference? During part of the morning, there were two, and part of the morning, there was one. What is so difficult about that? But the ivory tower scholars have to look down on scripture and assume that there's a problem. Okay, that was our our little detour. There's more problems with the synoptic, with source criticism rather. It creates, it completely ignores the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You realize we haven't talked about that yet, right? What is it that source critics assume? They assume that any agreements are due to a common oral tradition, that all the authors heard the same things, but most scholars believe that isn't sufficient to explain this perfect agreement. Let me me read again from a scholar who writes in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. He says, quote, It is almost universally agreed today that the oral theory is insufficient to explain the agreements between the synoptic gospels. These agreements include not only verbatim agreements in the Greek versions of important sayings, <clears throat> such, such agreement could be explained by oral tradition, but also agreements in the order of the material, which at times goes beyond anything that could be expected to be memorized in oral tradition. For example, Matthew and Mark break their narrative of the ministry of Jesus to go back in time to give the account of the death of John the Baptist, and they do so at precisely the same relative point in their stories, their accounts. Dependence on oral tradition can scarcely account for such a phenomenon of interruption of the story of Jesus' ministry at at identical points in the two Gospels. What is he saying? He's saying that the story of oral tradition doesn't hold water. How about this? How about the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired those texts? and that the Holy Spirit wanted both Matthew and Mark to interrupt at the same point in the story to go back and talk about John the Baptist. When you read source uh, source critics, they don't even give credence to that idea as a possible solution. It says that God is not capable of giving us inspired accounts. That's what they're saying. That you had to have heard it or read it somewhere, but certainly you didn't hear it from God. Another problem, it completely ignores the fact that these are all eyewitness accounts. Why do we have four Gospels? Because they're all from different viewpoints, all pointing to the same truth, to the same Lord. Eyewitness accounts, and, and this is common knowledge in judicial circles. If three witnesses or four witnesses get on a, on a witness stand and they all say exactly the same thing, the judge is very suspicious that somebody's lying because they've prepared their stories. If they all give different perspectives, that gives more credence to it being true. Another problem. Source criticism often operates under the assumption that Matthew didn't actually write Matthew, that Luke didn't actually write Luke, that that Mark didn't actually write Mark, and John didn't actually write John. So they're going under the assumption of pseudonyms, that the writers of Scripture are actually liars. that are using the names of popular men to make their work accessible. They completely ignore the unanimous understanding of the church for hundreds of years. Go to every church on earth in the year 200 AD and ask them who wrote Matthew. They'll whack you on the head and say, Matthew did. Who wrote Mark? Uh, Mark, who wrote Luke? Uh, his name's on it. There was nobody who believed source criticism back then. So, there's some huge implications of source criticism. If all the authors of the Gospels use secondary sources, either oral tradition or written, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's some major implications. There's some huge implications. The first one is that we don't have the actual words of Jesus. We have somebody quoting somebody else who said they have the words of Jesus. A source I cannot check you know what the irony is? is uh, I'm going to go on the rabbit trail because I just looked at the clock and I have time. Um, the irony is, take a college professor or a seminary professor who believes source criticism with all of his heart that the actual sources, we, we can't cite them except to say Q. We can't cite it uh, except to say M. We can't cite it except to say L. But we're going to believe that those are actually even more accurate What we have in the Gospels is just a a reproduction, a research paper, so to speak, of those. But boy, wouldn't it be great if we could go to the original. Now, here's the irony. Here's the total hypocrisy. Uh, Picture a seminary or a college professor saying this. Turn in a research paper to that same professor. In research papers, you have to do something called a bibliography. And you have to do something called footnotes where you cite, if you give a fact, you have to cite the source. And here's what they'll tell you. I need to be able to find that source. I need to be able to read that source. Your bibliography uses a a set criteria to tell me, the reader, where I could go read that for myself. So, uh, in fact, in seminary, you get graded on your bibliography. It's it's treacherous. Because if you mess up a comma or a period here and there, they'll nail you for it. Why? Because... The professor, in theory, ought to be able to go to the library, ought to be able to go online if it's an online source, and he ought to be able to take that source. If I quote hymns of grace, my bibliography should lead me to a path where I can hold in my hand the hymns of grace. Oh, and I quoted hymn number 180, and can it be? Okay, that fact, when I said in verse 2, he left his father's throne above, I can corroborate that fact is true because I can go to the original source. Those are the same professors who if they would give you an F if your bibliography just said from an unknown source that you can't find. They would say, what is this? This is academic hooey. And yet they believe in unknown sources that nobody has ever read. That is total hypocrisy. So, it doesn't hold any water at all, but it sure makes you sound really, really smart. Well, I know all about Q. Well, I do too. It's a letter in the alphabet, and that's it. That's it. This is huge because if the source critics are right, we don't have the actual words of Jesus. There was a a series of conferences a few decades ago um, called the Jesus Seminar. And it was all about source criticism and, and some other areas. And they came away that kind of a council with a conclusion. And their conclusion is, is that there are 12 places total in the Gospels where we know these were the actual words of Jesus. How do you build a faith on that? You don't. So you don't have the actual words of Jesus. Here's another major implication. We don't have the actual theology of Jesus. If we don't have his words, we don't know what he believed. If we, if we don't know what Jesus believes, we don't know what God believes, we don't know what God believes, what are we doing here? We're, we're guessing, we're rolling the dice on a document that the ones who teach people how to interpret this document say isn't entirely true. It's the third implication. If all we have is a, second, a second-hand account that's not historically reliable, what is happening in our churches today? from pastors who are being taught by professors who teach the pastors that you can't really rely on the words of Jesus. What has happened as a result? What's happened as a result is that the Gospels are taught as moral lessons. <clears throat> that when, when, when Jesus teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan, it means you should be nice to people around you. The parable of the Good Samaritan has nothing to do with being nice to people around you. It has to do with the qualifications for salvation. That when Jesus taught... that when somebody loses a a coin and they find it and they have a celebration, um, that means that God was so happy with you that that He came to save you because He's happy with you. That's not what that teaches. And so the Gospels get reduced to moral lessons only and then that expands to the whole Bible. Some of you are here at Grace because you attended churches for years where the sermons were moral lessons and you're like, you can do a moral lesson from anything. You realize that? You don't need the Bible to do that. You can pick up any book and create a moral lesson from it you don't need the bible for that what you do need the bible though is to know the mind of god and so if you're separated from the words of jesus and you're separated from the theology of jesus and the gospels aren't historically reliable that's a problem i think that's one of the issues that made the seeker sensitive movement which is now what we call american evangelicalism uh, take root so easily because there, was a, there wasn't a push to remain true to Scripture, but a push instead to make people feel good and use the Bible sort of as a prop, as something that is uh, just there, uh, kind of as a prop. Have you ever seen uh, a church service or a wedding depicted in a television show? The church service is always like 90 seconds long, you know, right? Because they're trying to move on with the story and the sermon is 45 seconds and, and then you're on to other things. Well, it's the same sort of thing. We're, we're denigrating Scripture to the point of saying it's just sort of a prop. It's a, it's a Hollywood set. The goal of source criticism and similar disciplines becomes then to examine the history behind the Gospels rather than considering the Gospels themselves as historical. By the way, this now bleeds over into the epistles as well when you think about the source I, I, we're, we're uh, studying through First Timothy right now and I have a ton of sources that I use and there's a couple of them that are somewhat helpful but they spend 90% of their time talking about where Paul must have gotten this and what tradition he got this from. And you know how much it helps me understand the actual text? Zero. It does nothing. And yet these guys sell books and they're two inches thick just basically saying nothing. It's phenomenal. So this has major, major implications. If I can't open the gospel, and when Matthew chapter 5, do I need to change Matthew 5 to say, and he opened his mouth and taught them, perhaps saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That just separated me from my Savior. If I don't know his actual words, that's a huge deal. All right, let's spend the rest of our time and we're going to plow through these because this is, we've already talked about a lot of them. Um, can we advance that one? <laughs> this is the best part. Why you can trust the synoptic gospels. This is a short list. I'm sorry, the font is like three. But they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and the original documents were perfect and without error. God cannot lie. I, we could close in prayer right there. That's enough for me. But 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Scripture says about itself. If that's not true, then Scripture is lying. If Scripture is lying, why would you believe any of it? Another reason, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, Paul tells Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the only time that word, it's a, it's a weird word, theapneustos. It means God breathed. It, it's not, it Really, uh, the term inspiration is a little bit odd. It should be almost the expiration, but that doesn't sound right to us. You know, the, the doctrine of the expiration of Scripture uh, it says, well, what, what died? So we stay with the word inspiration. We understand that. All scripture is breathed out by God. What do the source critics say to that? Nothing. Nothing, because they don't believe that. There's a third reason. They can be harmonized. You know, what, one of the great re, uh, things that happened during the Reformation is that scholars, Christians, began harmonizing the Gospels they began writing these harmonies. And that's been a great tradition throughout the last 500 years of church history. Um, great harmonies of the gospel. Um, they're, they're set up in two different ways. Some harmonies are actually set up in columns, four columns, and, 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 and they, they line up together uh, different things. And if, uh, for example, the gospel of John doesn't record something that's in the synoptic gospels, then his part of the column is just blank until it gets to another part. That's one setup. Another way they're set up is Um, An inculcation where they're they're completely melded together. The uh, the uh, harmony of the gospel called one perfect life that John MacArthur put out with help from Nathan Busnitz and and some others. That's an inculcation. You read it like one long story, and it has a million footnotes. Little little A, this one comes from Mark seven. Little B, this one comes from Matthew Matthew ten, and so forth. And it works. The reason harmonies are important is because you can do them. You can do it. So another reason we trust the Synoptic Gospels, they were written independently of each other. Now, did Matthew, Mark, and Luke know each other? Certainly. Did they ever have coffee? Well, probably not, but they they had something. And they may have shared stories, but they're totally independent. Some of these books are written decades apart. By the way, If you ask anybody in the church of Jesus Christ who knew anything whatsoever from the year, call it 50, to the year 1750. Were the gospels written independently? Again, you get the pink on the head. Of course they were. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were written independently. And all of a sudden now, scholars know better. Again, you have another reason the eyewitness accounts. Multiple witnesses. Matthew was an apostle. Mark was an eyewitness. A long-time assistant to Peter, who was an eyewitness. Luke carefully investigated shorter fragments of written memories, plus oral interviews of eyewitnesses, and the Holy Spirit inspired the final product. Another reason we can trust the synoptics. God providentially preserved that which He desired to preserve. When we went through uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I I noted to you that Paul wrote four letters to the the church at Corinth. We have the second one and the fourth one, which we say are 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And people panic at this. Oh, why don't we have the other two? Because they weren't inspired. And because they're not part of our Bible, nobody's ever going to dig them up and make them books 67 and 68 in the Bible. It's not going to happen. I'll bet Paul wrote lots of letters. He may have written to to a niece saying, Hey, I really enjoyed the pound cake that you sent me last year. Thank you for that. It doesn't mean just because it came out of his pen, everything has to be inspired. God providentially preserves exactly what he desires to preserve. Isaiah 40 verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There are no undiscovered parts of Scripture. 1 Peter 1.25 The word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Another reason we trust the synoptics. Each gospel presents certain aspects of the life and ministry of Christ with certain emphases. And we've said this before when we went through kind of an introduction to all the gospels. It's every gospel, the combination of these four actually gives information for every category of person on earth. The gospel of Matthew is written essentially to believing Jews. The gospel of Mark is written essentially to unbelieving Gentiles. Uh, The gospel of Luke is written essentially to believing Gentiles. And the gospel of John is written essentially to unbelieving Jews. Everybody on earth is either an unbeliever, a believer or a Jew or a Gentile. Four different combinations, which create a gospel for everyone. Now, Obviously, that is a little more complex than that. But two more reasons. And this is more of just an observation. If the Gospels are only man-made materials that may or may not represent what actually happened and what was actually said, they can't be trusted and they can't be studied. Why would you study something you can't trust? Nobody does that in any other field, right? Um, Jesus may or may not have said for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. If He may or may not have said that, why are we here? If I didn't believe the Bible with all of my heart, I wouldn't be here. I'd be playing golf or woodworking or doing something. Why would I waste time on something that's a a coin toss at best? One last reason. One of the things that source critics can never talk about Or if they do, it's a contradiction in terms. What they can't really talk about with any air of authority is the life-changing power of the Gospels to save. The life-changing power of the Gospels to save is undeniable. People have been saved reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for millennia now. If source critics were being honest, they would say, yeah, they're being saved, but we don't exactly know why because we don't believe most of what's in there. So the fact is, is that the Holy Spirit inspired the text. The Holy Spirit uses the text. And what what does that mean for you and me? Why go through this snoozer of a lecture on synoptic gospels? You probably won't even use the word synoptic in your lifetime. And maybe just go into a gas station and say, I'd like to to get gas on pumps two, three, and four. They're the synoptic pumps, just to show somebody that you know something. Why does this matter? Bible says that you have about 70, if God is super gracious, 80 years. That is a blink of time, that is a snap of the finger with which to figure out and hear and discern and know the truth about what happens for the rest of all of eternity. God graciously gave you a source that a five-year-old can open and read, Jesus loves you and We'll forgive you of your sins if you repent. Or a 65-year-old can read and in a matter of minutes know the truth of the gospel. We don't have time on this earth to read a, a gospel account and go, well, I hope those were the words of Jesus because I like them. We don't have time for that. And so the fact is, God is very, very gracious. Um, I, I'm excited a little later this morning. I'm going to be preaching about preaching. And I try to do that a couple times a year. The reason I'm excited about the Word of God is because it's like, to me, uh, I was a baseball fan growing up. It's like standing at the plate and knowing we're going to hit a home run every time. Because the Word of God is true. It's living. It's active. It will, according to Hebrews 4, it will divide your soul in half. And it will discern your heart. And it will find out your actual motives. It will find out what's inside of you. The source critics are trying to take that away. Fortunately, most people don't know about them. Just out of curiosity, how many of you before today knew the term source criticism? Okay. How many of you sat through this lecture before and that's why you know? Okay, yeah. So some of you cheated and you've heard this before. One of my favorite professors in seminary and some in this room know who I'm talking about said that the Bible is not safe in the hands of academia. That the Bible is only safe in one set of hands and it's yours. Because you're too busy to think about maybe the Bible doesn't mean what it says. You read the Bible, you thank the Lord for it, it changes your life, it gives you a a perspective of who God is and it probably never even occurs to you to question it. Unless you don't like what it's saying about your own life, and then that's another issue. So, I want you to know about this. We are grace, all caps, Bible Church. Because we believe the Word of God. And so what I I hope for you is that as you read through the Gospels and any book of the Bible, that you know that these, according to Jesus, the punctuation was inspired. The letters are inspired. The words are inspired. The paragraphs are inspired. We hold to what we call verbal plenary inspiration, meaning the whole thing altogether is inspired. Every word, every dot, everything. What does inspiration always lead to? Well, if this is the very mind of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit, then this alone holds authority for me. So, if you want to go check out a book on source criticism that's, that's like reading the dictionary it's that level boring and you can do that but my hope for you is that you just trust and love your bible at as high a level as possible amen okay we'll do this again in a couple years let's pray together thank you lord i i, I know that this is some treacherous waters to try to go into these sorts of details When I know for all of us here, Lord, our our main concern is how can I walk worthy with you? How can I walk through a life that's hard, that's painful, that that requires great faith? And we understand that. But the way we walk through a life that's painful, that's difficult, that requires great faith is to trust a God who gives us a word that is perfect. That I hold in my hand a representation of the very mind of God, the very will of God, of the triune God the Father through the Son and inspired by the Spirit. I hold in my hand according to Romans the Word of Christ. These are the words of my Savior. Lord, I pray that they would be transformative to those who read and don't know You and they would be sanctifying to those who read and do know You. Let us love the Word of God, and thereby love the God of the Word. We thank you and we praise you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.